Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, welcome back to the OIS Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Salemi. And this week, we're going to have a conversation about dry eye disease, which has been getting a lot of attention at recent conferences. We had a, a segment set aside, both a panel discussion and some presentations at our OIS uh, in April. Uh, and at AAO this past October, there were one or two sessions uh, centered around dry eye that commanded a lot of attention, both from companies and from clinicians. So I'm pleased to be joined by Tim Willis, uh, Chief Executive Officer and co-founder of Tier Science, which is one of the device companies out there that both has, a, has both a diagnostic and a device that can uh, can treat an element of dry eye, and, and Tim will give the the details of that. But uh, welcome to the show, Tim. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Look forward to the addressing your questions and hopefully uh, giving some insight into the dry eye space for for your for your listeners. Well, I've seen your presentations at our conferences, and I'm sure you'll be very informative. They're always very well done, very enjoyable, and I'm not just thank you. Uh, so. Going back to the, the, the two conferences that uh, I referred to, our OIS conference, uh, both the one at AO, but also the one in April where we had larger segments to it. Dry eye, at least this year, seems to be getting a lot of attention. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? And if so, what is, uh, what is that attributed to? Uh, first, I agree with it. It's, been, it's kind of been delayed in coming. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is, and these are not our numbers, these are actually other industry company numbers, there's 25 million moderate to severe dry eye patients in, in the U.S. alone. And marketing data that we did where we actually went out and did chart analysis in physicians' offices where we signed confidentiality agreements, actually looked at their charts and stuff, the prevalence, depending on the type of the average, was around 38%. So 3.8 out of 10 patients walking in that front door had had dry eye. And that was the and that was the reason they went to that office, or was it a secondary reason? It, it could be primary or secondary. Mm -hmm. What we looked at when we did that was clearly to find out what was the true what was the ophthalmologist, and these were ophthalmology practices. We've since then added optometry practices to that and the range goes from 28 percent all the way up to 55 percent the average is around 38 percent mm. uh, of the patients coming in and there's tons of modalities around it uh, that are, are kind of thrown at the space so to speak interesting uh, dry eye disease might be one of my favorites because i can say it and i understand it just by saying it it's a, it's fairly easy to, to comprehend but can you give me a, a primer on uh, on dry eye disease how, how do you define it uh, well, there's, in effect, there's three types of, the one thing that had happened for years is people weren't being specific of the type of dry eye. And there's, in effect, it being very simple, there are three types of dry eye. One is, which is very small, less than a percentage point, is systemic like Sjogren's or, or damage because of external, external damage and things like that. And then there's what is called aqueous or lacrimal deficiency. That, in our, in our estimates, around probably 20%, 15 to 20%. And then the largest disease state in dry eye, which is where we focus at, which is around 80% or so, 
is meibomian gland dysfunction, and otherwise known in the space as evaporative dry eye. Mm -hmm. And we we focused on that since we started the company back in 2005. Yeah, that was my, my next question. You, you started in 2005. Did you know that uh, mybobian gland disorder was the, 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 the lion's share of dry eye? or and, and is that what you went after initially when you started the company? Or did you just start a dry eye company and sort of gain a focus after creating the company? Well, we were very lucky that we had a, my co-founder in the company, Dr. Donald Korb, actually termed the term meibomian gland dysfunction. He wrote the first seminal paper on it back in 1980. So we, we understood it. We knew it. I was very lucky to have an individual as brilliant as Donald uh, was to help us and really guide us because he knew exactly what was going on. And this was way before the industry was there. I mean, probably the antidote that I like to use when I went to Arvo back in 2005, it was April of 2005, April, May of 2005, there was 300 papers on, three to 400 posters on lacrimal uh, or aqueous deficiency dry eye or inflammation dry eye. And there was probably six or eight around lipid or evaporative or meibomian gland dysfunction. At this last Arvo, there was hundreds around lipid or evaporative and probably about half that on aqueous because I think the entire industry, the research community, all that have now tr changed their minds that meibomian gland dysfunction, as we refer to it, which is a disease, uh, is the key driver in, in most of the dry eye that's out there. Hmm. And what is the cause of that recognition? It does seem a bit serendipitous that you have this company in this space that is gaining a lot of recognition, or or is this space getting recognized because there's now the technology and the and the treatment to to address it? I think part of that is one it, uh, was because we you know we developed it and we've been driving it for some time working with groups such as the Academy of Ophthalmology, the ASCRS, also with TIFOS, the Tearfilm Ocular Surface Society, and our group have been involved in that, you know, since way back in 2007. But on top of that, I think it's becoming not just us. I mean, there are lots of other individuals who published around meibomian gland dysfunction because if you think about it for years, all of the industry and all the physicians we're really kind of throwing what I would call they were, I use the term treating to failure. So a patient would come in, you'd give them an eye drop, send them away, you do a, you know, you do a punctal plug, send them away, come back, and they're always coming back saying, Doc, I don't feel any better. Mm -hmm. And really it was an understanding, there wasn't really a core understanding of what the core reason or the systemic reason of why this was happening. And really it, boiled down to meibomian gland dysfunction, which is a uh, occlusion of the meibomian glands because they secrete oil and lipids and the like. And what happens from that is if you, if you don't have appropriate blinking, uh, especially to, in today's, te today's technology world where everyone's always kind of looking down at their phones, if you look down, you don't blink. Mm -hmm. So there's more and more of it. And if you don't blink, that oil and the surfactants and stuff that are in the glands occlude. They block. They stop secreting oils or lipids onto the eye. 
the aqueous evaporates and then you end up being basically having evaporative stress which causes what is called a, a triple response of Lewis or histamine release, burning, stinging, itching as it continues and that's where you end up leading to right down, that's the cascade to dry eye. Mm -hmm. yeah, you never think that uh, blink is so complex but there's a lot of elements to it. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons in one of our product we actually added a blink detection because it became. It, we know now that it is critically important of evaluating that from a diagnostic or from a physician's perspective, evaluating the patient. Tim, you you uh, unveiled uh, LipaView two at uh, at AO this year, correct? And and you've got LipaFlow out as well. Uh, talk talk a bit about your your product offerings and 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 what exactly they do. Well, my. We call it uh, IDT, Identify, Diagnose, and Treat. Mm -hmm. And first thing we do is we identify the type of dry eye that a patient has. And we do that with the lip of you, where the lip of you and the, with the lip of you too, we measure the lipid layer thickness on the tear film in nanometer thickness. We, may, we actually evaluate the blink response and the, it, whether a patient has a partial blinker or not. Uh, and we also now with the lip of U2 actually eva evaluate, so that's the function part. And the second component we've added is we also now evaluate the glands, which are the structure. So, so from that, with the identification, we do that. You can actually define the function and the structure of the tear film. The next component of it is, is then we do what I call the diagnostic, where the physician takes that, looks at it, and then also does, we use, we call it the CORB meibomian gland evaluator, the CORB MGE, and, and he or she looks behind the slit lamps a couple minutes to do both lids to really see what, what the glands are doing and functioning. And so the doctor very simply, in a very short order of time, can define you have this type of dry eye, and if they're evaporative uh, dry eye or meibomian gland dysfunction, then they would treat them with our uh, LipaFlow treatment device. And the LipaFlow is an in-office procedure, takes about takes 12 minutes, very comfortable. In fact, in our clinical, all the clinical studies, we just finished a large duration of effect study and we always have asked around about pain, and it was very consistent with our FDA study that we did. I think out of a scale of 0 to 10, we were like 1.3 or 1.4. It's basically you can feel something, you know, there's an awareness of something in your eye, but it very, most women, it's funny, refer to it as a hot rock spa treatment. Hmm. And it's an in-office procedure, and what it does is it liquefies this, this gunked up material that are in the glands. It completely... Then what we do is once it warms it up and liquefies it, then we have these microbladders that push and milk out all this old material, cleaning the glands out, allows the glands to upregulate and start producing lipids again. And depending on how bad the patient is, anywhere from two weeks to three months, they're back to normal and you have dramatic improvement in symptoms and the like. That's how the procedure works. Hmm. What has uh, the reimbursement been like for, uh, for this? There is, Go ahead. there is no reimbursement for the LipaFlow. Mm -hmm. uh, we, have a, we have a T-code or a, it's 
called a Category 3 code, which we're in that process, and we've been working towards that long term, and that will happen in the future, but for right now, it's 100% it's patient self-pay. On the lip of you, uh, on the core lip of you, on the blinking and the lipid layer thickness, that is not, that also is a T code for that. Now, on adding mybography, or as we call it, dynamic, dynamic mybography to it, imaging, DMI, uh, that actually has a code that's a crossover code that you can use uh, for reimbursement for that. And what was your experience with, uh, with the FDA? How was that? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, that's, um, that's an interesting one. Um, well, it took us almost over four and a half years to get through the whole process. Hmm. And, uh, and their concerns were about safety, and then, of course, in the end, also about the efficacy component of it, but more about the safety side. And there, it was extremely rigorous process, and there was also a lot of change going on at the agency, and so we were kind of caught up into that process. So it literally was a four and a half year uh, cycle that we had to go through. Mm -hmm. Well, now, now that you have the, that behind you, and, and you're, you've got uh, well some some clarity on reimbursement, although I'm sure you'll be pushing for some codes there. And, and along with that, the recognition of, of dry eye, is, are you functioning in a, do you have a good tailwind behind you, kind of driving sales forward? What has the, the commercial rollout been like? Well, we've, we've now been on the market about two years, and mm -hmm. we're actually doing quite well. I can tell you that it is, um, we do have some headwinds, because physicians have always been trained uh, we are a disruptive technology and almost a paradigm shift. And most physicians have a mindset, oh, it's got to be treated with a drop. Mm -hmm. And so there's really an education process. Now, the positive news now is, you know, in the U.S., we have about, we have now 300 commercial customers in the U.S., approximately 300, 290-something and and we've now treated commercially on a global basis 50, over 50,000 treatments and so uh and so it's it's scaling uh we still are small as a company from a sales organization perspective we are adding salespeople right now uh as we grow and our entire focus now is on sales and marketing is the adoption rate any different uh overseas or outside the US you know, we're very focused on that uh, in, in a very limited way. Like in Europe, we're only we're basically in a couple of countries in Europe, and we're doing quite well there in in Germany and the UK, and in other we have three or four other uh, distributor markets that we're in. But our entire focus, where we're direct, is in North America, the U.S. and Canada, and then also in a couple of countries in Europe. Interesting. And so we, our purpose around this, as we are venture funded, is appropriate cash management and focus on where you can get, you know, the biggest return, which of course is those markets that we're in. Interesting. F final question. I mean, you started Tier Science in 2005, so nine years ago, close to 10 years ago. Did the company story and did the dry eye story play out as you anticipated it would? 
Well, you know, when we first when I first started the company back in September of 2005, uh, our entire focus was on the treatment side. What we found that <coughs> we had two I had three I had two worries going in or two concerns, not worries, two concerns going into it. The first was would the treatment be effective? And the second phase was is would the industry, and especially the top physicians and researchers, be believe that evaporative dry or a meibomian gland dysfunction is where everything's going? Well, the second one has played out over time extreme. I don't think we could have done that any better. And we've been, as I call it, part of a change agent there. But the entire industry is because everyone was looking for a a way to better treat dry eye. If you think about it, Tom, when we did our clinical study uh, for the FDA, we did an evaluation of all the clinical studies that were out there. Thirty-three had failed. Mm, wow. Okay, thirty-three had failed when we did ours, and I told my VP of Clen Reg, no pressure. <laughs> I'm sure he. I'm sure he and so, and, and we were, but we we knew what we were doing. The second, but to go back to your question, the second component of it, it became very obvious that we had to do two things. One was we had to develop from scratch a clinical metric that could be consistent, repeatable, and reproducible. And what we did, and therefore that's why we developed the CORB MGE, and we call that MGYLS, meibomian glands yielding liquid secretion. So we developed that, the FDA recognized it, and now we know others who are actually using it, and there's been probably 20 papers published around that because there's now a clinical sign with that, that directly correlates to symptoms. That was, if you'll think about dry eye, there was always this difficulty of correlation between signs and symptoms. In all of our studies, almost 40 IRB studies, an FDA study, a duration study, we show, without a shadow of a doubt, signs and symptoms correlate with what we're doing. And so that was the key, one key item. The next item, it became very obvious of why we had to go down the diagnostic route. And that's the reason why I had to raise more money in doing that was doctors, even though they, they would tell you that they believe they could, oh, I know what this type of patient is. Mm -hmm. The reality was we needed a better device and a better diagnostic tool to help them truly identify the type of dry eye. And that would also make us, because if you treated an aqueous patient with our product, they're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. and, and so that was one of the por portions. But the other portion was really to understand if you had failures, why they failed, how to, how to do it, how to address it, and that was critical. So we're and that's why we ended up going down, instead of having one product, which is a procedure, we ended up having both, which is both a diagnostic tool and a treatment tool product. So where are we in the dry eye story and in the, the tear science story? Uh, are there, do you see a, a wave of innovation coming, more products coming down the pike, both from you and from other companies? Is this just the beginning? Oh, I know that more, as we become more and more successful, we know there are others that are starting to get in this space. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the good news about it is we were the first and we've been very aggressive on going after the IP side. So uh, that's going to be an interesting one. But 
Look, if you think of, uh, I, I won't use our numbers, I'll use, uh, there was a paper done by Limp and a bunch of folks, Dr. Limp, and I think it was like, it, but in my booming gland and combination of my booming gland and aqueous, it's like 85, 86% of the patients had my booming gland dysfunction. That is the largest disease section in dry eye. Mm -hmm. More and more people are going to try to play in that space. And if you're going to do that, one of the things you have to do is you have to un you have to unblock or rejuvenate or reactivate these glands. To do that, tear science is going to be in the future. And the simple way I look at it, if if doctors are going to provide premium vision care, the cornea provides seventy percent of all of the optical capabilities of the eye of the telescope of the eye. The tear film, if you don't have a stable and a healthy tear film, you're going to impact it with aberrations and all that. All those things flow through, whether it's a refractive implant, an IOL, a corneal inlay, whatever you do, uh, or even a contact lens, uh, that you're going to have to have a good, stable, healthy tear film. To do that, you're going to, they're going to need to work with tear science. Terrific. Well, I wish you the best of luck going forward, and uh, thank you for the conversation. I, I tend to blink more whenever we talk. I think you've got me aware of my of my blinking action, so I appreciate that. Well, the next time at the academy, Tom or the ASCRS, come by, and we'll we'll put you on the lip of you, and we'll evaluate how you are. <laughs> we do that a lot, and uh, we all uh, from it. And again, I would like to personally thank you for inviting me and allow me to be on your show. It was much appreciated. My pleasure, and thanks for fighting through the head cold. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Tier Science CEO Tim Willis. Next week will be our last installment of the OIS podcast series for 2014. It's been a real pleasure visiting with you each week, and we look forward to renewing the conversation next month. We already have a long line of distinguished guests in the interview queue. So be sure to listen in next week and to rejoin the conversation in January. Happy Holidays and Happy New Year from all of us at OIS. OIS is now accepting applications for presenting companies. Share your technology and clinical data with over 800 industry executives, investors, and key opinion-leading ophthalmologists. To be considered for the Ophthalmology Innovation Showcase, apply online at www.ois.net forward slash application.